1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, give ear to the reading of God's holy word. Paul says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair uh, and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, as you probably could tell as I was reading that and you were following along, we've come to a passage today that has caused, uh, in some circles anyways, no small part amount of consternation and controversy among some in the church. Uh, There are some even who find Paul's words here in our text in this part of the passage to be offensive or even by some I think he would, would, would call them misogynistic in nature. They are not that, but there are, there are some who take offense to them. Uh, there have been a lot of approaches or various approaches to texts like this one throughout the years. Some, some of these texts, and you can see why to some degree, some of these texts are sometimes just plain avoided like the plague. Some pastors, you know, just, what's the old phrase, where eagles dare? You know, some pastors just don't want to touch it. They don't want to touch it with the 10-foot poles. They pick other other texts. Um, I think that's honestly one of the reasons, one of the good reasons why expository preaching is to be preferred in the churches. You know, it often seems to be the case that, you know, if, if a preacher is left to just pick and choose and pick and choose, these are the kinds of texts a preacher is never going to pick and choose. And so when you when you preach right through a book, you come to texts like this, and I think sometimes it's a good thing. Uh, when you go right through, straight through various books of the Bible, uh, it's usually these kind of things that don't get picked. So when you when you preach right through a various the various books of our Bible in their entirety, the preacher, as well as the congregation, are then forced to study through these difficult and uncomfortable, at least for some, passages of God's word. And that's a good thing. If God's word, not the preacher, not somebody's misinterpretation, but if the word of God at times makes us somewhat uncomfortable, that's probably a good thing. That probably means we were too comfortable than we should have been on a certain subject. Now that being said, there are other approaches as well. I've I've heard sermons on passages like this one where the preacher seems to spend the most of his time I don't know how else to say it, explaining away the plain meaning of the text or apologizing for its subject matter as if God had somehow put something harmful for us in his word. We should never treat the scriptures that way. We should never be embarrassed by anything in God's word. We should be embarrassed if we're not conforming to it. Now, to be sure, the word of God is sometimes twisted by wicked men. Uh, Some men uh, take biblical truths and abuse them and misuse them and distort them and Paul deals with that kind of thing in the first chapter already. We saw that earlier in our study where he he commanded Timothy in in verse 3 of chapter 1. He almost starts the book with it. He says, charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Paul recognizes that false teaching is always around. And so the first thing he does is say, Timothy, charge certain men not to teach these things. 
And then he gets to our text as well. And I think, I think all these things, when we're dealing with texts like this one, everything for the believer begins with a right view of Scripture. Your view of Scripture will determine what you do with a text like this and any other text that you might find yourself reading and being uncomfortable with. But what does Paul say about Scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17? He says, all Scripture, not parts of it, not the parts we like, not the parts we're comfortable with, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of Scripture, even the parts that we might find difficult to understand. There are parts of the Bible, and I'm sure everyone here knows that, there are parts of the Bible that are not easy to understand. Peter, of all people, the Apostle Peter says of Paul's letters, there are some things difficult to understand in them. You're in good company if you've read parts of Paul's letters and thought to yourself, I'm not sure what that means. Peter said the same thing, but it's still Scripture, and it's still there for a reason. All of Scripture, those parts that you might find difficult to understand, the parts you might find uncomfortable because we do understand them, uh, those parts, too, are breathed out by God. They're inspired by God. And that being the case, it is free from error. There is no error in God's Word. There is no filler in God's Word. God's Word is authoritative. It is fully sufficient for faith and life. And it is all there for a reason. It's all there for our good. And notice what Paul says it's profitable for there in those verses, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God, again, may be complete, equipped for every good work. All of us, no matter how long you've been a Christian, no matter how long I've been a Christian, we all need to be taught the truth from God's Word. We don't just naturally know what to believe about God or ourselves or life or the Gospel on our own. We just don't. We don't intuitively know these things without being taught from the Word of God. We also, every one of us, at times we need reproof or correction. None of us naturally just think, believe, and live right. None of us. Left to ourselves, we would not think or believe or live right as God would have us to do. Sometimes we need our thinking on a subject reproved or corrected. Sometimes we need our practice, our way of living reproved or corrected as well. We shouldn't be surprised when that happens when we're hearing the scriptures being taught and preached rightly. That's why from time to time I have said, you know, if you're a member of this church or any Bible-believing church for any length of time and you never hear anything that makes you a little uncomfortable, there's probably something wrong. Either I'm not doing my job or you're not doing your job or some mixture of both. We're not listening or we're not teaching because there always is going to be something uh, every once in a while, you're going to hear something that stings a little. Not because I'm aiming. I don't aim. I just shoot like a shotgun. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't aim at anybody in particular. If you ever thought that I'm aiming at you, I'm not. Uh, I don't aim at anybody. But God, the Holy Spirit, makes His His word applies to everybody in different ways. Uh, if you don't ever hear something that might go against the grain of what you naturally think and believe, uh, there's probably something wrong as well. That's why in, in the book of Acts, what did they say about the Bereans? They were fair, more noble-minded because what did they do? They searched the scriptures daily to see if the things Paul said were what? Were true, were so. 
Elsewhere in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Paul says, We are not to be conformed to this world, but be what? Transformed by the renewal of of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. So with that in mind, uh, with your kind permission, I'm going to preach this text this morning with kind of bluntly and plainly without a lot of excess qualification or going into much detail about possible exceptions here and there. What our goal should be this morning, as with any text of Scripture, we should have the goal in mind to let us seek to have our minds renewed uh, together by God's Word that we might discern His will for us. What does God want us to do? How would God have us to live? And specifically with this book, First Peter, First Timothy rather, how does God want us to order things in the church? That's the point. That's the goal. And so the first thing I'd like to look at this morning is in verses um, 11 through 12, and that's the restriction that Paul gives us in our text. If you remember verses 8 through 10, Paul gave uh, a lot of teaching there about how things were to be ordered in the church regarding both men and women. And here he goes on to give us uh, not just instructions about, about modesty and dress and things like that, but he gives us a restriction regarding teaching and authority in the church. Look at verses 11 to 12. He says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. Now, frankly, some of us, we read that and we immediately, the hackles go up, uh, and we skip the first part. It's like we, we don't really think much on the first part of verse 11, but I think we should note there that Paul here is encouraging women to learn uh, women in the church to study and learn the word of God. That's the first part of the passage. He's not saying learning is not for the women in the church. And you shouldn't care about learning. That's men's work to learn and study. The women should just sit there and not care about what's being said. No, he wants them to learn. He wants them to learn. He's encouraging them to study and learn the word of God. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. If, you, if you've read the epistles of Paul, and maybe you haven't, maybe you have, uh, he he often, in his epistles, mentions prominently the women that have served alongside him in the church in a number of ways. In Romans chapter 16, when you think of Romans, that great treatise on the gospel, Romans 16, he mentions, quote, Our sister Phoebe, verse 1, Our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in, in Sancre, and that she was a patron of Paul and many others who labored in the gospel there in verse 2. He also mentions Prissa, or Priscilla, And Aquila calls them both, not just Aquila, he calls them both my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. If you read Romans 16 on your own, that'll be your homework tonight. Uh, He mentions other women in that passage as well. He's giving his closing greetings, and it's quite a long chapter, and he's saying, greet so-and-so and and greet so-and-so. All these different people, including many women, who had served and helped the ministry of the gospel in many ways. He brings them up. Now, in our text in in 1 Timothy chapter 2, What he tells us is that women are to be learners, but they are not to be teachers in the public assemblies of the church. If you want to summarize his meaning in this text, you might be able to draw more meaning out of that. If you want the bare minimum of what Paul is saying, that's it. He's saying the women of the church are to be learners, but not teachers in the public assemblies of the church. Now, we might be tempted to think that in our day everything's new. You know, we might be tempted to say, well, you know, women seeking ordained office in the church, that's a relatively new development. That's something since somewhere in the 20th century, and now it's gotten worse in our day. Is that really the case? Was Paul talking hypothetical here? Was he, was he just making up hypotheticals out of thin air? No. 
He's addressing something that was going on in the earliest decades of the New Testament church. There's a reason he brought up what, what he brought up. It was not, a, you know, we might think this is some kind of recent phenomenon, but that would be a mistake. The very fact that Paul even has to bring it up tells us that it's not the case. This has always been something that we have had to deal with, no matter where they were in the church, whether it was in the church in Ephesus, as it is here, in Asia Minor, or whether it's in the church in California. In the 21st century, these things have always been around, and Paul has left us instructions for these things. Teaching and exercising authority over men, Paul is saying, is forbidden to women in the church. Now, I have to add this. It's also forbidden for most men. I know people that act like, when they, when they hit these kind of passages, they say, oh, being a man is the qualification. No, it's not. I mean, it, it's a requirement, but most men are excluded from teaching and authority in the church as well. And frankly, we'll get to that in the very next chapter, won't we? Chapter 3 is all about the qualifications for, for elders and for deacons. And it doesn't just say, if he's a guy, he's good, bring him in. In fact, any man worth his salt that reads those qualifications probably thinks, that's not me. I'll, I'll let you know when I find somebody. That's, that's kind of how we, we should probably look at it. But uh, he'll get to that in the very next chapter. So we must be careful that we don't try to be wiser than God in these or any other matters. Now, even if you're not sure why God says something in his word, that, that happens a lot, doesn't it? You ever read a passage in the Bible and thought, ah, maybe you, you're saying, you're not saying I don't know what it means. You're saying, I know what it means, but why does he have to say that? Why does God have to put that? That makes everybody uncomfortable. Why, why couldn't God say something a different way in his word? But the right course of action is to, to trust and obey God. If he has it in, its word, in his word, it's there for a reason. Even if you're not sure why it's there, trust and obey God. Know that God knows why he put that there. God knows what he's doing. Even when we don't, we shouldn't try to be wiser than God. You know, when we start explaining away the plain meaning of a passage of Scripture on this or any other kind of matter, in order to do what's right in our own eyes, or in order to conform to the world around us and not give offense to those who might not like what the Bible teaches, it rarely ever stops there, does it? It almost never stops there. I had, uh, when I was in the Navy, I won't say his name, but we had a chaplain um, who was a Presbyterian, but he's probably not the right kind of Presbyterian, frankly. And we bugged him and bugged him to start a Bible study for us. And he did, and we regretted it. Because he didn't believe the Bible. And he made that plain pretty early on. He didn't say, I don't, I don't believe the Bible, but he's sort of denying the worldwide flood, all kinds of things in the Old Testament. Well, that didn't happen. This didn't happen. That's not really what happened. God didn't really create this way. And so me and my friend that asked him to start it, we were the first ones to leave. And what, I remember the last thing I said to him at that Bible study, and I respected him. He was an officer and I was enlisted, but in the, in the context of the Bible study, I asked him, you know, where's, give, give me a scissors and show me where the parts that, that are true and the parts that aren't. And let me know how you figure out how to decide that. How do you decide, where do you stop and what's your, what's your measure? Because it seems like the measure is what I like and what I think is true on my own. And where's it? it's never going to stop. Once you start going there, you won't stop. Because you've made yourself the standard rather than God's word. And that's never a safe course of action for anyone, much less someone who calls upon the name of Christ. It's no accident, I think, that, that churches that go against this, this clear teaching in, in God's word 
they, they almost always trend to go in a more and more and more progressive and liberal direction because it doesn't stop here. And the posture of judging God's word rather than submitting to it, is it's opening the door to that kind of action. It's a downhill pattern from there. It may not make sense to us. We may say, why would that one thing? It's not that the one thing causes everything else. It's the posture towards God's word to begin with that starts the decline. Once you put yourself in judgment upon God's word, everything else starts to fall away. It just takes time. Now, many argue against Paul's instructions here in our text by citing examples of women uh, leaders that are found in parts of the Bible itself. And those parts are definitely true. But God's word, we must know, does not contradict itself. Very often people use one part of God's word to go against the part they don't like. But God's word does not contradict. John Calvin wisely says it this way. He says, if anyone challenges this ruling, Paul's ruling, if anyone challenges this ruling by citing the case of Deborah or other women of whom we are told that God at one time appointed them to govern the people, the obvious answer is that God's extraordinary acts do not annul the ordinary rules by which he wishes to be bound. Another way of putting that is the exceptions don't disprove or invalidate the rule. God can do what he wants. God can make an exception in the book of Judges and whatnot, however he wants and for the reasons he wants. But when he gives us a rule, that rule is not to be invalidated by that. We don't get to throw God's acts back in his face and say, well, you did this. We follow what he says. That's what we're supposed to do. We should exercise great caution in how we understand those exceptions or seek to apply them beyond God's rule. Now, there are vital teaching ministries for women in the church. Paul is not saying there is no teaching ministry for women in the church. He's nowhere saying that. There are vital teaching ministries in the church for our women that are not related to holding church office or to teaching men. He's not saying there's no teaching for you to do. He's not saying don't bother studying because it doesn't matter. He's saying don't teach or hold authority over men. Look at Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. Titus 2, 1 through 5. Paul, the same writer, writing to another pastor in the pastoral epistles again, says, But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, what is that? What accords? What is in line with sound doctrine? He says, Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. He tells Titus, this young apprentice pastor that he put in charge there in Crete, hey, here's, here's what they should be teaching. They have a ministry too, and here's one of the things they can be doing. Now, he says, older women, I know Paul's on dangerous ground when he says that. <laughs> Titus might have been saying, define your term. You know, I don't think we need to go there too much, but he's saying the older women in the church are to live godly lives and are to teach what is good. And in teaching what is good there, they are, in doing that, they are training the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands. That is a needed teaching ministry. It's not the only one, but it's needed. 
Notice what Paul says about, about that, everything he said in that paragraph. He says in verse 1 there that that is what accords with sound doctrine. Like a hand in a glove. That's what fits. That's what's fitting with sound doctrine. In other words, to go against that would be to go against, in practicality, sound doctrine. He says we are to follow those things, verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Think about that. It may sound like a silly thing to us. It may sound like a nitpicky thing to us. But to go against these simple things would result in God's word being blasphemed. That's what Paul says in no uncertain terms there. Notice these things again. They are in accordance with sound doctrine. They are that the word of God might not be reviled. And So what Paul is saying here is our very lives and the right biblical ordering of our families and our church family is to be an adornment of the gospel. It is to be in some way a, a, a something that fits with the gospel and makes it shown to be true. In some sense, how we order our homes, how we order our church, can either fit with the gospel or, or go against it in some way and not be fitting with it. That's Paul's concern. That's Paul's main concern. So to act like this is some secondary issue and it's got nothing to do with the gospel and, and the health of the church and the witness of the church is far from the truth. Now, I, I would say this is a much-needed teaching ministry in our day in our churches. There's no shame in exercising such a ministry in our church and in our homes. It should be a ministry that's honored and respected in our homes and in our churches. Imagine what our nation might look like right now if we saw more of this biblical wisdom put into practice. Just imagine what things might look like if this was followed in some ways. That's not the root of all of our problems, but I think the way the family is arranged affects the way the society is arranged. And look at how things have gone. I dare say it hasn't been going well. Matthew Henry notes the following as a note of encouragement. He says, But notwithstanding this prohibition, good women may and ought to teach their children at home the principles of religion. Timothy, the one whom Paul is writing to in this letter, Timothy, from a child, from childhood, had known the Holy Scriptures, and who should teach him but his mother and grandmother? 2 Timothy 3.15. Remember what Paul tells him there? Remember how you learned the word of God, the scriptures from your youth? Who taught him the word of God before Paul ever had a chance to do so? His mother and grandmother taught him. And look what Timothy was doing now. Pastoring a church under Paul's tutorship. He goes on, Matthew Henry does, Aquila and his wife Priscilla expounded unto Apollos the way of God more perfectly, but then they did it privately, for they took him aside unto them. Acts Chapter 18, verse 26. Think about that. Now, we don't know much about Aquila, but Aquila was a man who was mighty in the word of God, in preaching and teaching. And he had this couple, not just Aquila. The couple pulled him aside, privately, maybe in their home or somewhere else, and and taught him, here's the right way to understand the word of God that you're teaching. They helped equip him to further what he was doing in preaching the word of God. Both of them did that. It's not without reason that it's been said. There's an old poem, I believe this is attributed to. It says, the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that does what? Rules the world. The hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. You might know who J. Gresham Machen is. If you don't, I hope you will familiarize yourself with him. A great Presbyterian theologian of a century ago. 
Uh, during his childhood, it is said that his mother regularly taught him the Bible, the Shorter Catechism, and the Pilgrim's Progress. All through his childhood, his mom taught him those things. Uh, he dedicated his greatest book, Christianity and Liberalism, in the front of the book it just says, to my mother. You just don't know what you might do by teaching your kids and by helping others do the same. You don't know who you're going to be equipping for ministry down the road. Well, Paul doesn't just give us the restriction. He gives us the reasons for that restriction. And those reasons are rooted in creation and the fall. Look at verses 13 to 14. He says that he gives us the reasons or the rationale behind those things, behind those instructions. Verses 13 to 14, he says, Why is it? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, Contrary to some who argue against Paul's restrictions, he doesn't base any of this on culture or anything like that. People often say, well, they they try to kind of narrow Paul's scope and say, well, Paul was dealing with a particular uh, culture in the church in Ephesus or in Rome or in Corinth. And it was a cultural thing back then. The unbelievers were offended you know, something like this, if women spoke in the church. And so for the sake of them, to be a good witness, Paul said, okay, don't do that. Does Paul say anything like that here? No. In fact, it's the least cultural thing you could think of in some sense. He points points back to Genesis 2 and 3. Before any culture existed, so to speak, he points to creation and the fall. This was not just a restriction based on a culture. It was not just a restriction based on uh, that was just specific to the church of Ephesus. He doesn't. Paul's not saying, Timothy, you know how Ephesus is. You know how the city where you are is, so you've got to watch it. In fact, he does the opposite of that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 33 to 34, the Apostle Paul writes this to a different church in Corinth. He says, For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. And here it is. As in all the churches of the saints... Not just Corinth, not just Ephesus. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. He's saying the same thing he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 2. When it comes to the public teaching of the church, an office in the church, that was the order of things. In our text, Paul grounds this restriction, this instruction, uh, in the created order itself. In the account of creation in the book of Genesis, how God made Adam and Eve. Back in the earliest chapters of Genesis, he he bases it in creation in Genesis 1 and 2. He also bases it in the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Those are the reasons, those are the bases for the ordering among men and women in the church. It starts in Genesis 1 through 3. Matthew Henry kind of summarizes Paul's words and argument here. He says, as she, that's Eve, as she was last in the creation, which is one reason for her subjection, so she was first in the transgression, and that is another reason. That's exactly what Paul is saying here in the text. When Paul says the very first word there, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, he's saying this is the reason. This is why I'm saying what I'm saying. He's saying that this is the very reason behind this God-ordained order In the church, simply put, God's order and design in creation is to be reflected in the order and design in the church and in the home. And that was based in the first chapters of our Bibles. And that's what Paul points back to when he wants to teach this for all the churches. Paul 
Paul now, Paul is not saying that men are smarter than women. The Bible doesn't say it. Uh, he's not even necessarily saying that women are somehow easier to deceive than men. In fact, many men are quite easy to deceive and to tempt. But you could say that the, in the garden, Eve may have essentially assumed Adam's proper role, and that's why the fall happened. One of the reasons why the fall happened is his book called The Christian Family, uh, Dutch theologian Herman Bovink, I commend that book to anyone who wants to read up on this. Herman Bovink writes the following. He says, The first sin thus immediately involved a reversal within the family order. Rather than following her husband, the wife took the lead. Rather than being obedient, she took charge. Rather than being a helpmeet for him, she assumed the roles of mistress and regent. I think he's right. I think that's what Paul is saying. Adam didn't do his job in guarding the garden. And he allowed Eve to try to do his job for him. And bad things happen. He is at fault as much as she. If Bob Inc. is correct about that, and I, I suppose that he is, I don't think it's any surprise that when we see God's design and order in these things in both the home and the church being violated, that bad things happen. It's not the way God has ordered it. Now let us be careful to note on the side here how important the book of Genesis is to the rest of the Bible. And if you've noticed as you've read your Bible over the years, how many times Genesis, even the first chapters of Genesis, come up in the New Testament? I want to say there's hardly a doctrine taught in the New Testament that doesn't have some kind of basis pointing back to the book of Genesis. Not just the text that we're looking at right now, but over and over again, the writers of the New Testament point back to Genesis in many ways to establish the doctrines that they teach. They say this started then. When you think of the gospel itself in Romans chapter 5, Paul is showing us that the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and where does he, where does he start with it? Adam. That in Adam's fall sinned we all, so to speak. That we all fell into to sin and death and depravity when Adam fell, that Adam was our head. Without that, Christ isn't our head. He, he basically bases the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us on the former imputation of Adam's sin and guilt to us in the fall. So when you start, no, no pun intended I guess, when you start monkeying around with Genesis, you affect a lot more than you think. You affect a lot of things that maybe you don't realize, well, if I just fudge here, what harm could be done? You know, think about it. I'm no mathematician. Anybody who knows me knows that. But, you know, if you were to, to be working for NASA and launching a rocket to, to Mars or something, if your math is off a little bit in the beginning, where's that rocket going? When you mess around with the beginning in the Bible, you mess around with a lot of things that you may not realize you're messing with. Now, is it any wonder why so many unbelievers and skeptics, and some of those even in the church, have set their sights so often on the book of, of Genesis? And especially the early chapters. It's like they rage against it. It's because, it's because they, in some way, it's because of the devil. He knows better than some of us do how important that book is, especially even the early chapters to the rest of Scripture. Now, if Paul had stopped there, if my sermon were to stop there, I think you might be a little maybe discouraged somewhat or depressed at the thought of the, the prospects for women in the church. I hope that's not the case. That is not Paul's point. That is not Paul's intention. Paul is not trying to discourage anyone. 
If he had stopped there, some of us might have wondered if there was any hope, any usefulness uh, for our ladies in the church or in life. But in verse 15, he speaks words that are meant to convey firm hope and reassurance, even if to us they sound kind of strange, maybe to our ears. Look at verse 15. He says, Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, I have to admit, this is probably one of the most puzzling verses in the entire New Testament. If you were to take the time to grab a stack of commentaries and read through what they all say, everybody's guess is as good as yours in some regard. They all have different uh, thoughts about it. Commentators have debated the meaning of this verse for hundreds of years, and so I will not promise to solve that mystery for you necessarily this morning. I'll do my best, but some have suggested, and it sure sounds good, uh, that uh, women being saved through childbearing is kind of a, if I can use this phrase, a like a redemptive historical nod to the birth of Christ and the Virgin Mary. They would say that all believers are saved through this childbearing, this particular one. And that would make it nice and neat. And I could tidy, you know, tie it up in a nice neat bow and say that's enough. Now, th- those things are true, but I don't think that's what Paul has in mind here in our text. Paul switching from the singular in, in this verse He says, she, singular, will be saved. And then he says in the plural, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. That plus the mention in the the text of the requirement, he says, if they continue in what? Faith and love and holiness. I think that requirement rules that out. He's not just talking about Eve. He's not just talking about believers in some general sense. He's still talking about the women in the church, the, the believers in Christ who happen to be women and moms and whatnot. I believe the word, the word childbearing here in, in verse 15 is most likely a nod back to the account of the curse in Genesis chapter 3. Paul has been dealing with Genesis 1 through 3 in, in this brief passage. And in the, 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 the pronunciation of the curse, or pronouncement of the curse upon Eve after the fall, this is what God tells Eve, Genesis 3.16. He says, I will surely multiply your pain in what? Childbearing, same or different language, but same word Paul uses in our text. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. I think he's saying, in Christ, that childbearing is not all curse. If you continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control, God makes even your pain in childbearing and child-rearing a blessing to you and to them, and you will be saved through it. It will not be in vain or for no reason. I think that is what Paul is saying here. Paul is seeking to provide comfort and encouragement for women, that their calling in the family and the home is not vain or hopeless, and that they too have the hope of salvation by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ, and that God will even use their childbearing and childrearing and grandchildrearing for his glory and for their good. So by the grace of God and the work of his Holy Spirit in us, may we seek both in the home and in the church to order all things in such a way that is true to God's word, is pleasing in his sight, and that accords with sound doctrine to the glory of the name of Christ. Amen.